0: begin the message today. If you've been tracking with us, you know that we're in the midst of a sermon series, our summer ser- sermon series that we're simply calling How to Win at Relationships. And I'm concluding this series, and this has been a really rich series for me. I'm struck by how much I get out of these messages. In fact, I tell most people if they come up and they say, hey, that word really hit me today, I say, you know what? I could set a mirror right here uh, and preach to myself because most of the times." that's what I'm doing. If a message ever grips you, just know that in the weeks of preparation that it takes to put something like this together, the Lord grips me well before he grips you, and I must confess that I have been in some ways arrested by the things that the Lord has given me uh, to share to you, and I trust, share with you, and I trust that some of you have been arrested, challenged, encouraged as well. We spend time talking about relationships because that we believe that relationships matter. At the core of who we're supposed to be as human beings created by God uh, is love, love for God, love for other people, being highly relational, and having healthy relationships. So we take time each, each year to talk about relationships at length. We've talked so far about how to disagree. We've talked about marriage. We've talked about friendship. We've talked about parenting. We've talked about singleness, And last week, we even talked about social media and how we relate to the world around us on social media. Today, I want to conclude this series by talking about a very sensitive subject matter. I want to talk about sex this morning, okay? Um, And I just want to say, by way of disclaimer, that this sermon today is rated PG-13. We intend to deal with and dive into a mature subject matter, and uh, we just want to have the freedom to do that. We know that there might be young ones in the room today that you may not want to expose to this subject matter. Maybe you want them to hear what we have to say. And we promise not to be uh, unduly controversial or try to go for the shock value, Uh, but we do want the freedom to discuss this at length. We have a great children's ministry that you can check your children into. We also have a ministry for middle schoolers and teenagers if you'd like to check your children uh, in there, I just want to make sure that I am not forcing you to have a conversation that you perhaps are not ready uh, to have. And I would also say um, um, that if our ushers and greeters, if folks are coming in, um, Michelle, if folks are coming in late, would you just let them know? If particularly if they have little children, because we do not, we do not want to rush this conversation that you might want to have with your children. But we do want to talk about this because it's one of the most important subjects. That there is. I understand that this is a hot button issue. It's very, very sensitive, especially from a Christian perspective. I also understand that this is a vast subject that I won't even begin to be able to touch on everything I want to touch on. You know, I could spend an entire year talking about this stuff. and So I certainly won't hear everything today, but I do want to talk about sex and sexu- se- sexuality from a Christian perspective. And since I can't cover it all today, I just want to begin today with some basic assumptions, things that I don't really have time to flesh out, but it might be helpful for you to know that these are my basic assumptions as I engage with this subject. The first basic assumption is that God has the final say on all matters. Scriptures tell us that the earth is the Lord's and everything in it and somehow, way, we believe that the person who made the thing gets to say how the thing goes. Right? And so, in that sense, God has the final say. I didn't say your church has the final say. I didn't say any denomination. I didn't say your favorite preacher has the final say or your favorite book on the subject has the final say. God's word has the final say. And so, it behooves us to what? Wrestle with the text. Understanding that we see it in part. Sometimes we get it wrong. We can bring our own worldviews and broken perspectives and brokenness and bigotry to the text. And so sometimes we can get it wrong, but what we are charged to do is to wrestle with what God has to say because he has the final say. Listen, we all have our, our opinions, but God and only God gets the final say on what is moral and immoral, what is ethical and and what is unethical. And just by way of defining those terms, you know, morals are concerned with the principles of what's right and what's wrong. Ethics are a set of moral principles that get sort of assigned to groups of people. And so that's sort of the realm that we're dealing with. God has the final say on those matters. Second basic assumption is this. Sex is a good thing. And the church said amen. Amen. Uh, sex is a good thing. And, I, and you would think that would go without saying, but it, it, it needs to be said because depending on how you grew up, particularly if you grew up in church, uh, particularly if there's any uh, measure of abuse or distortion surrounding this subject, you could come to this discussion, you know, sex is something we talk about in hushed tones or it's, it's something that's taboo and risque. No, sex is a good thing. It's a good and perfect gift. In fact, it's one of the gifts that I'm I'm most thankful for. God really, he really knew what he was doing when he put this together, right? Sex is a good thing. And so we don't approach the subject uh, with like this sort of ickiness or this sort of like shame that can get heaped on this. Sex is a good thing. And like many good things, there is a right and a wrong way. To manage your sexuality. That's the third basic assumption. There is a right and wrong way to manage anything, especially your sexuality. And we live in a world that says, listen, there's no right and wrong. Hey, you do what you do. You feel how you feel. There's no right and wrong until I break into your house. Then it's wrong. Until I offend you, then it's wrong. So, so there is a right and a wrong way as informed by by what God has to say on the subject, there is a right and a wrong way to manage our sexuality. Uh, And the final basic assumption that I come to this subject with is this, there is freedom, forgiveness, and redemption for all sexual sin and brokenness. Listen, I know that there's a lot, many of us in this room, if not all of us, have sinned in this area. We've, we've, we've fell short of God's standard in this area. And so sometime, some of us e- recently, as last night, we have violated God's law as it pertains to this subject. And so I just want to know that it's God's kindness and his truth that draws us into relationship with him, that draws us to healing and freedom and redemption. And so I just come to this subject understanding that we can speak truth. We can say some hard things because at the end of this discussion is an opportunity for you to surrender and do these things God's way, which opens your heart and your life to all matters of freedom, forgiveness, and redemption. There is hope even if you've made a mistake, even if you've messed up. Amen? So that's where we start this conversation. So it's true that we will all have our sexual ethics developed in one way or another the other, right? The question is just, how will that come about? And the way I see it, we have a few options when it comes to how our sexual ethic is being shaped. We have some options. As far as I can see it, those options deal in three realms. How, who, and when. As it relates to how, I believe that you can actively or passively have your sexual ethic shaped you can actively or passively have your sexual ethic shaped. What I mean by that is you can actively pursue wisdom, instruction, information. God's hard on this matter. You can pursue it. You can lean into it. You can allow God and others to speak into this. Or you could just float down the lazy river of whatever happens, happens. And how many of you know that whenever we just float down the lazy river, that lazy river always flows what? Downstream. It descends into chaos. It descends into a sinful place. It descends into a place of hedonism uh, uh, that is very far off and from where God is. And what I've found as I've walked with Jesus is I have to ascend to a place of holiness. I have to ascend to a place of enlightenment. I have to roll against the grain of what my natural sinful self wants to do so that I can pursue and achieve and receive God's ideal for any realm of life, especially this one. I can actively or passively let this thing be shaped. The second realm is the who. I can either let God or the culture shape my sexual ethic i can let god his word his truth his standard his final say which flows out of his love for us and wanting to do things the way he created it to be done i can let god shape that or i can allow the culture to do it and if you don't like how the culture is shaping anything just wait a decade or so it'll change It'll be blown around with the winds and the waves. But only God's word is timeless. Only his word is sure. He knew how we were to be from the beginning. He knew how things would turn out, how they would evolve. His word is sure. And so we can let God or the culture shape our sexual ethic. The third and final realm is the wind, And the way I see it, you can either do it now or you could do it later. You could either do it now, or you can do it later. Now suggests that there is urgency, that this is important. I want to actively lean into this. Later is like, hey, we'll see what happens. We'll cross that bridge when we get to it, might I submit to you this morning, ladies and gentlemen, that it's too late to figure out your sexual ethic when you're underwear or around your ankles in the back seat of a car, It's just too late. It's too late to figure it out. When you and a coworker that's not your spouse has decided to go to a motel on your lunch break, it's too late. You're not going to make a good choice then. It's too late as you pulled into the strip club. It's too late when you're in front of your laptop at 2 a.m. Looking at what you look at at 2 a.m. It's too late. You're not going to land on a good, you know, godly choice in those moments. It's best then to figure it out now when you're a sober mind. Before you've thrown a hand grenade into the room of your life and blew everything up. It's best to do it Now, And so we put all those things together. The correct method, I believe, is to actively let God shape your sexual ethic right now. To let God shape your sexual ethic right now, today, if you haven't already. This is such a challenging topic. Why is this so hard? Why is something that is so natural, something that everybody deals with, why is it when we step into the realm of Christendom, does this become so challenging and so hard? I think I might have it figured out. The reality is God sets a high bar when it comes to human sexuality, doesn't he? He sets a high bar. You say, a high bar relative to what? A high bar relative to the culture, because our human standard in most cultures uh, for sexuality is typically defined by what is legal, and typically what, the, what 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 the law is concerned with is is consent. Are both people in agreement? Are people of age to make consent? Was a person of their mental faculties to make consent? Are they consenting adults? Then whatever you want to do sexually, as long as two people are in consent, then hey, it's your thing, do it. I would submit to you today that in light of God's word, consent is too low a bar. Consent is too low a bar And that's why there's tension. Culture says, hey, as long as two people agree, then they can do whatever they want. As long as nobody's violating somebody's will, you can do what you want. But God sets a high bar. And today I want to look at what Jesus has to say about this subject. And if you just need a title for today, I'm calling this a Christian sexual ethic. Christian sexual ethic. Jesus has something to say about this, and it should inform every aspect of our sexuality and really simplify things that we have worked really hard to make complicated. Um, I'm not suggesting that there are easy answers. Uh, I don't uh, claim to know at all. In fact, there's very much I don't know, and so that's why we lean on the scriptures to give us insight today. A Christian sexual ethic, we're going to look at Matthew chapter 5, starting at verse 27. Would you turn there with me in your Bibles? Uh, There are Bibles uh, on the edges of your rows. Feel free to use those if you need one. Uh, We'll also be projecting the words on the screen. Matthew chapter 5. While you find that, let me pray. Lord Jesus, thank you. I, I need you today. I need your help today, now more than ever. I realize the weightiness of this conversation I realize that we all come into this room with some type of sexual history many of us nursing wounds um, of all sorts and so I just pray Father that minimally I do no harm this morning minimally nothing is is said insensitively or, or flippantly but Lord, that each word has been bathed in prayer. Each word has just been set to your meter. And so, Father, I pray that you would go before me this morning and make the crooked places straight, that these words would land as you've intended them. Put power on these words. Bring freedom today. Bring clarity from your word. Move the preacher out of the way so that your truth and your light might shine through. We ask all these things in Jesus' mighty name. And all God's people said, amen. Matthew chapter 5. I'll start at verse 27. This is Jesus talking. You have heard the commandment that says you must not commit adultery. But I say, anyone who even looks at a woman with lust has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So if your eye, even your good eye, causes you to lust... Gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your hand, even your stronger hand, causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. What a refreshing passage to engage on this beautiful, sunny Sunday morning. Jesus doesn't pull any words here, does he? Doesn't pull any punches. This is a striking text, mainly because it hits everyone in the room. There's Some passages you cover, some subjects you talk about, where somebody can go, you know what, I wish I would bought my phone in here so I can catch up on some emails because this ain't got nothing to do with me. This is not such a topic, right? This hits everyone everybody in the room anybody who might happen upon this podcast this hits him and so i like this particular passage because jesus does among other things two things one he, he he aims at the obvious truth right verse 27 says you have heard the commandment that says you must not commit adultery he's quoting the law he says you already know that's obvious right don't have sex with somebody you are not married to. That's obvious. It's in the book. A pious Jew would have known that particular bit of the law from, you know, from a baby. It's obvious. He mentions that. But then he continues in verse 28 to say, but I say, and it is my experience when Jesus gives a fact and then he follows that fact, but, but I say to you, hold on to something. Because he's about to raise the snakes. He's about to press us in deeper and ask more of us than the law on its face asks of us. It's going to require of us considerations that the law in and of itself may not require of us. He says, but I say to you, anyone who even looks at a woman with lust has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Jesus, I wish you wouldn't have said that. I, I was tracking with the adultery stuff because I'm, I'm good there, but when you just, 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 just looks at a woman with lust, looks at a man with lust, like it's like we've done the deed. Like who can stand up to that rule? Or maybe you can. And just to look at somebody with lust is it, maybe to ponder, Wonder what it would be like to dot dot dot. It sure would be nice if dot dot dot, it's not simply admiring someone's beauty. It's the step further where you start to lust and long and take that look and longing to a place up here. That's what Jesus says. If if you do that up here, you might as well just go ahead and do it. You might as well just go ahead and do it. And so this is the standard that Jesus sets. And what does Jesus know that sometimes we lose sight of? What Jesus knows is that every affair started with lustful thought. Because every action starts with a with a thought, doesn't it? I mean, you don't accidentally have an affair. You're not just walking down the street and then you just stumble into the hotel. You get a key and you stumble it. You know, there's some steps to it. You got a plan. You got a lie. You got a scheme. You got to move some things around. But Jesus knows that all of that stuff from Adulterous affairs that completely blow up families to porn addictions that saddle us with all manners of bad. It starts with a look and a lust. It starts by looking at something and going, My, 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 wouldn't it be nice to have some of that? Now, maybe you wouldn't say those exact words. <laughs> Whatever you would say, Jesus knows that it starts that way which is why he's so forceful which is why he's so unyielding and the burning question is like why is jesus making such a fuss about this why does scripture deal with sex in such definitive terms the answer is this friends sex is powerful isn't it sex is powerful by design it's powerful It's powerful not just because it's reproductive, and you think about the beauty of two bodies getting together and creating new life. It's powerful in that sense. It's it's powerful, but not just powerful because it's pleasurable, and if you're doing it right, it's oh so so pleasurable. It's not just powerful because it's deeply emotional. It's the intertangling of souls together. It's Powerful, I think, largely because God designed sex to be the physical consummation of the marriage contract, where two people leave their families, cleave unto one another, and as the scripture says, become what? One flesh, and the deal is consummated with this act of sex it's why that this physical act which can seem divorced from any emotional entanglement also comes with lots of emotional entanglements every person you sleep with even folks that you've made out with somehow there is a an emotional containment uh, 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 attachment And sometimes you're just walking down the street and somebody you've been with just pops into your mind. There's a soul tie. You see it all the time with people making all kinds of foolish decisions. Like, why are you making that decision? Like, why do you keep going back to that person? There's usually some, something going on. Sex is powerful because God designed it that way. And because sex is so powerful, hear me, friends, God builds a fence around it get the picture of a power plant whether it's nuclear or something like that to get the of something that holds lots of power y- you typically see a fence around those things there might be some armed guards someplace maybe some alarms to, to to sound off if somebody you know no goes in that gate and it's not supposed to be there power is great it turns on our lights but it could kill you right and you don't just want anybody messing with these sources of power. God builds a fence around this powerful thing we call sex. And you might ask, well, what is the fence? According to Scripture, the institution of marriage is that fence. The institution of marriage is the fence that God builds around sex to keep those who are supposed to be inside inside and to keep those who are supposed to be outside outside and so this seems to answer the age-old question what's wrong preacher if I know we're going to get married what's wrong with just giving each other a little sample what's wrong with just test driving the goods just to know if we're compatible in that way it's an age old question. And the answer is the same. God builds fence around marriage. Around around sex and that, and that, that fence is marriage. I've said this before, but you, you weren't intended to know how good somebody is sexually before you marry. That wasn't intended to be the deal breaker. God did not intend somebody's sexual prowess to be one of the things that you made the decision as to whether or not you marry them, right? I see this happen all the time. People who are totally incompatible stay together because their sex is good, because they enjoy that part. And sex is so powerful, it clouds all sorts of judgment, all these red flags that everybody else can see, (laughs) right? Right? He never intended for the physical stuff to be the deal breaker. What he intended was for you to get to your 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 wedding night and be absolutely clueless as to what to do. That's how it was for us. My wife and I are blessed to 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 to, to be virgins when we when we got married. And let me just tell you, that night didn't go any anything like what I thought it would go. <laughs> we we're saving ourselves and married, We get there and like, how did we do that? What is this guy? stumbling around, groping around, and finally just like, Is, isn't that cake left? <laughs> <laughs> this isn't... But we we're, were ignorant together. I mean, we figured it out, you know, four kids later. I think we figured it out. <laughs> but <laughs> God built this fence around sex because it's so... It's so powerful. And that power can can motorize things and make things go, but it can also cause great destruction, as many in this room have discovered. And so from what I can gather from Scripture as it relates to sex, God seems to prohibit all sex and lust outside of heterosexual marriage i say that again, and I know that's a controversial statement. God seems to prohibit all sex and lust outside of heterosexual marriage. Now, let me just say that I have friends that I love very much, that are smarter than me, they're more biblically astute than me, and they disagree with me on this particular point, particularly to define marriage as exclusively Uh, heterosexual. They totally disagree with me, and I respect them. I don't understand all the times how they gather, what they've gathered. But I'm just saying, when I look at Scripture, and many before me, these are the parameters they seem to set. Christopher Wan, in his book Holy Sexuality in the Gospel, which I highly recommend and has greatly informed some of my thinking on this subject, frames for us what it looks like for us to respect the fence that God places around sex. In his book, he says this, we've pigeonholed ourselves into the wrong framework for biblical sexual expression, heterosexuality, bisexuality, or homosexuality. It's time to break free from this paradigm and embrace God's vision for sexuality. Holy sexuality consists of two paths, chastity and singleness and faithfulness in marriage. Again, his heading here is holy sexuality. Chastity in singleness and faithfulness in marriage. Chastity is more than simply abstaining from extramarital sex. It conveys purity and holiness. Faithfulness is more than merely maintaining chastity and avoiding illicit sex. It conveys covenantal commitment. He continued... Both of these embody the only correct biblical sexual ethic and unambiguously articulate the exact expression of sexual behavior that God blesses. Too often Christians focus on marriage but forget about singleness. Case in point, heterosexuality says nothing about Christian singleness. Yet God blesses both biblical marriage and singleness on without excuse me, one without the other doesn't sufficiently describe. God's will. And so I love how uh, uh, Christopher Juan puts what we're supposed to think about sex and sexuality under this heading of holy sexuality. When you think about holiness, the Bible frames it as being set apart, sequestered for the master's use and for his use only. And so when Christopher Juan breaks these things out, he says he, these things boil down to chastity in singleness, purity in and holiness and faithfulness in marriage. In short, that if you find yourself to be single and unmarried, that God's expectation for you sexually is to be pure and holy and to abstain from both sex and unhelpful lust. He goes further to say that if you find yourselves to be in the fence of marriage... That God expects you to be faithful in your marriage, not just physically, but also within the realm of your mind. He frames it as a covenantal commitment chastity and singleness, faithfulness in marriage. And so this deals with adultery, this deals with fornication, this deals with pornography, this deals with self-sex or masturbation, chastity and singleness, faithfulness in marriage. He believes that it is as simple as that. You might have as a question after I say all of that, Pastor, what about the LGBTQ plus community? What about them? Where do they land in all of this? And let me just say, I confess a great deal of humble ignorance as it comes, as it relates to this subject. When you asked me, if you would have ask me this when I was 17 or 18 or 21 or 25, I would have had all sorts of opinions for you on this. As I've lived and as I've walked with Jesus, And as I've befriended folks who live squarely in this community, it, it has really caused me to listen more than I speak. It's really caused me to not try to give $5 answers to $500 questions. And so it is with a great deal of humility and humble ignorance that I even, you know, say just a few words on this matter. It's also worth saying that it's not my heart to offend, to be flippant or insensitive, to be unduly forceful, harsh, or argumentative, or bigoted. And it is my heart to start any discussion about this with an apology on behalf of the church and some of my coworkers. I I apologize to you on behalf of the church. We've dropped the ball on this issue In some ways, we've been too loud. In other other realms, we've been too quiet. We've stood by while others have been beaten and tortured for being gay or lesbian or any other shade of that community. We've ignored the bullying in schools and on college campuses. We've told, laughed at, or turned blind eyes to jokes and slurs. We have elevated certain sins or issues that deal specifically with you as far more significant and icky than others. We've isolated people who sin differently. We've often mishandled or totally ignored members of this particular community. Uh, In many ways, we have not led with love. And for that, on behalf of the church, I apologize. I assume that they're in a room this size, that there's somebody in here from that community. And for that, I apologize. And I pledge to you that in this church, as far as I'm concerned, it shall be different. That you are welcome here. That we we want you here. Let me also say um, that I don't think that our it's fair for our brothers and sisters in the LGBTQ plus community to be at a church for two years before they figure out where that church stands on the issue. I know it feels easier and safer to just not talk about it, but how would you like to just sit someplace and get comfortable and become friends only to be blindsided by the fact this thing that's really important to God and really important to the people who, who wrestle with these things, to, to just be blindsided by this reality that, you know, we believe that that particular lifestyle is sinful. Like, I feel like I should be, there should be, you know, indicators of where we land on this, indicators of where we stand on this. Again, not to be bigoted and plant our flag someplace, but I feel like people deserve to know how we interpret God's Word on this particular subject. And part of that is why I'm asking and answering this question today. There seems to be deep confusing, confusing, excuse me, concerning just what is the big deal with homosexuality? Many people can't seem to understand why is same-sex attraction sinful but many of the people who report being attracted to the same sex uh, didn't choose to be that way or feel that they were born that way or it's an impossible thing for them to change on their own. And I would submit to you that that's a fantastic question. And in order to bring some clarity on the subject, I believe, as Scripture supports, that attraction, particularly same-sex attraction, is not sin. Attraction is not sin. In fact, when you look at the scriptures and look throughout history, sexual orientation is a fairly modern idea that doesn't appear to be addressed really at all in the scriptures. One of the main objections to uh, the Christian or biblical perspective on this particular issue is, hey, why am I on the hook for something I didn't choose? This is just who I am. This is just how I... Yeah, And so this is where I find Christopher Wan's uh, simplification. I don't believe it's an oversimplification, but his simplification uh, and his framing of holy sexuality as something that should help us figure this out. Under the banner of holy sexuality is chastity in singleness, faithfulness in marriage. And so what one uh, uh, believes being himself a a gay, celibate man who has decided that he cannot, in conjunction with his faith, act out on what he believes his sexual orientation is. So he's celibate, and he shares how God has transformed his thinking. He says that those who uh, will not or cannot find themselves in a heterosexual marriage will categorically be single, and so therefore the way they live out holy sexuality will fall categorically uh, with chastity in singleness. And I know that's hard. That's really challenging. It's really hard. And so this has nothing to do with same-sex attraction or, uh, you know, uh, sexual orientation classically, Because what the Bible seems to label as sinful is homosexual acts, right? Nobody's going to hell because they're attracted to somebody else of the same sex. Nobody's in God's doghouse because they're struggling with same-sex attraction. What What the Bible clearly pushes back against is homosexual activity or acts, And it is safe to say and necessary to say that there are no neutral or affirming passages in all of Scripture of the homosexual lifestyle. I didn't make this up. I'm just reporting to you. And so there's a whole list of Scriptures. Leviticus chapter 18 verse 22. Don't practice homosexuality. Having sex with another man as with a woman is a detestable sin. Romans chapter 1, verse 26, this is why God abandoned them to their shameful desires. Even the women turned against their natural way to have sex and instead indulge in sex with each other. And the men, instead of having normal sexual relations with women, burned with lust for each other. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9, don't you realize that those who do wrong will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't fool yourself. Those who indulge in sexual sin... Uh, who worship idols or commit adultery, or male prostitutes or practice sexuality. No, notice, he lumps that in with all the stuff that heterosexual people deal with as well. It's not like on this island that's super, super bad, but he does mention it as he lays out the things that are off. Limits. First Timothy chapter one, and then in Jude one verse seven. And don't forget Sodom and Gomorrah and their neighboring towns, which were filled with immorality and ever kinds of sexual perversion. Those cities were destroyed by fire, and and serve as warning of the eternal fire of God's judgment. Listen, a friend of mine says this, and I believe it. He says any serious follower of Jesus has to deal with those verses head on. Now, I'm not telling you what to do with those verses. I'm not. But any serious follower of Jesus has to deal with all the Old and New Testament passages that are aimed at homosexual acts. I mean, and really wrestle with it. And frankly, some of my friends have wrestled with it, taken it to the mat, and they walk away feeling like God has, not, God has somehow changed his mind. They've wrestled with it and come to a different conclusion than I come to. That's, that's not my thing to worry about, but we're charged to wrestle with these passages. And when I wrestle with them, it seems that the scriptures are pretty black and white when it comes to Homosexual acts. Why? Homosexual acts run against the grain of God's design for sexual intimacy, male and female. Homosexual sex is not what God had in mind anatomically, physiologically, it is simply not God's best. And we need to let God, through scripture, shape our sexual ethic on this issue and not. The culture, because the culture will ebb and flow. Right. The culture will say in one century that oh, that's terrible, and then in the next century they say, "Oh, it's okay." But well, the Word of God throughout history sets the standard that is timeless. And and it's really honestly above my pay grade to decipher who was born a certain way or not. It really is above my pay grade I don't know anything about that I've read things about it and I I haven't come to the conclusion it's hard for me to figure out but generally speaking it doesn't seem to matter with regard to what God says is allowable and what isn't it seems really really unfair and can I just be honest with you can I just be transparent in this moment I really wish and I don't think I've ever said this publicly. I really wish that homosexuality was not something that is, that, 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 that is sinful according to this. I really wish. In my heart of hearts, I'll say to you openly that it seems really unfair. Because when I imagine myself, if, if I'm, I can only imagine what it would feel like and what it would be like to have your emotions and your attractions be wired one way and have the God you serve says, listen, even though that's how you're wired, even though that, that's how you, you know, that's how you're, it's, it's wrong. I wrestle with that. I got an issue with that. I tried to find a way around it. And if I'm honest, it seems a bit cruel. It seems unfair. I wrestle with this. I didn't write this book. Neither do you. I'm the mailman. I I just bring the mail. I love the people. I open the hospital. And say to you whether you're dealing with heterosexual issues or homosexual issues, the hospital is open. Whether you're dealing with this manner of brokenness or this besetting sin, I'm not going to judge you because if you knew what I've I've come through, if you know what God has forgiven me from, if you knew my history, you say, you have no no right or footing to judge anybody. God's been too good to me for me to lord these scriptures over somebody else. My job is to speak truth, seasoned generously with grace, and to love anybody who walks in the door. That's what my job is. That's what your job is. And above all of that, my job is to wrestle with Scripture and do what God says. And so Christopher Wan, in his book, if you read it, talks about how he has to walk out as a person who's only attracted to other men. He has to walk out chastity and singleness as a gay man. He realizes he'll never be married. He's got questions for God. He wrestles with it, but when he wrestles with the scripture, he lands squarely in this place that the marriage fence keeps sex away from him. As cruel as that sounds, as unfair as that seems, it falls squarely under holy sexuality. And so I just sort of took a detour there. I was was talking about uh, Jesus prohibiting lust and sex. He deals with the obvious, no adultery. He deals with the gray area, right? Anybody who even looks at a man or a woman with lust is guilty of adultery. But he continues in that short passage that we read uh, to insist that we be proactive about our sexual ethics. There's one thing to know what's right and wrong it's another thing altogether to, to walk out a plan to stay squarely within God's, uh, God's sights as it relates to holy sexuality. And so Jesus, as I can tell from, from Scripture here, insists on proactivity. Like I said before, you don't just let things go and end up in a holy place. Right? You don't just say, hey, whatever just happens today, wherever this road, wandering road takes me, and you end up on the higher plane of sexual purity. That simply does not happen. We must be proactive. Jesus says in verse 29, so if your eye, even your good eye, causes you to lust, gouge it out, and throw it away, it is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. He continues in verse 30, if your hand, even your strong hand, causes you to sin, cut it off, and throw it away, it is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. Anybody confused about what Jesus is talking about here? If you happen to be confused, let me paraphrase for you what Jesus is saying. Whatever it takes... For you to walk out holy sexuality, do it at all costs. Striking to me how Jesus doesn't use something frivolous or something incidental when he talks about what we should be willing to get rid of in order to uh, walk out holy sexuality. And say, hey, listen, if, you know, that book, those books that you don't ever read in the corner, if those are causing you to sin, just maybe get rid of them, take them down to the goodwill or something like that. He said, your eye. How many people are willing to give up your eye? You kind of need those. You especially need your good eye. Some of you just have a good eye. One eye doesn't quite work right, but you got a good eye. And the Lord says, if that good eye is causing you to sin... Get a spoon, gouge it out. It's graphic. It's urgent. It's messy. It's immediate. You get the picture. It says if your hand, even your stronger hand, even your writing hand, is causing you to violate holy sexuality, get an axe, and chop it off. I think about my hands, I think about my livelihood, I think about my hobbies, I think about the things that increase my quality of life. When I hear in these words, is like, listen, 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 guy, if, 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 if I know you got that good job that requires you to travel, and when you travel, you get into all kinds of mischief on the road, away from home, um, you need a new job. I know you got the premium channels with all the premium stuff, but when those, the, all that premium stuff starts to cause you to violate God's will and his plan for holy sexuality, you need to maybe unplug. I know you got that smartphone that gives you a window to the world and all the internet access that you can muster. I know that seems like a necessity today. But maybe you need a flip phone if you can't stay off of certain sites. Accountability is never convenient, is it? And this is the point that Jesus is making. So if you can't, if you can't stay hopping in and out of bed with folks, then maybe you need to stop dating until you can get to a place. Maybe you need to delete those apps. Whatever it takes, Jesus says chastity and singleness, faithfulness in marriage, you may not need friends of the opposite sex if you can't contain yourself. You might need a transfer. You might need to do something because that sister has let you know in, in pretty certain tones that whenever you're ready, you can have it. Some of us, this is where we live flirting with all manners of things. We've invited things into our space. There are habits and there's well-worn patterns that lead us to something that's far less than God's best for us. Jesus said, when are you going to get proactive about it? When are you going to get proactive about it? And so my question to you is, what does proactivity look like for you? If the goal is Chastity and singleness, purity, holiness, faithfulness in marriage. That means you get to draw from only one well. You never get to go outside of the fence that God builds around sex for you in your marriage. What does proactivity look like for you? What would you do today if you took this seriously? What would you gouge out today if you took this seriously? What would you chop off today? if you took this seriously. Again, I'm not demanding that you do it, but I think that a start would be to just maybe write down or ponder in your heart what you changed today. If you took this seriously, what would you change today? Who would you let go? And it's quiet in here because it's supposed to be quiet. That means you're listening. That means that this word has got your number. And this is, this is like everybody in the room, right? Holy sexuality, faithfulness in marriage, chastity in singleness. God's heart for us, his plan is, and worship team, you can come up as I close, is for us to actively let God shape your sexual ethic right now. And I know that many of us are in a place where we just keep failing God in this particular realm. Maybe it's with a person. Maybe it's with pornography. Maybe it's something else, and it's like you keep falling in this area, and you feel this guilt, you feel this shame, and you promise to do better. You know, it might be the case that you haven't squared away certain things in your heart. It's one thing to know that something's wrong, but it's another thing to square away in your heart that this violates God's best for me, and to my hurt, I won't do this. If it inconveniences me, I won't do this. If it inconvenienced me, I won't go there. If it causes a reduction in my quality of life, I want to let God actively shape my sexual ethic right now. Who needs to hear this today? who have got some decisions to make? And so let me just say as I close too that I realize that a lot of our sexual brokenness, uh, a lot of it, not all of it, comes from harm being done to us. Somebody who's taken advantage of us. Somebody who's exposed us prematurely to certain things. And a number of the things that you're dealing with in your life had nothing to do with you in its origin. And some of you have made resolves and resolutions. You've been in accountability groups and nothing's worked and I believe that there are supernatural, demonic strongholds that need to be broken off of some of us in order that we might be free. And so I don't know if you knew this, but we believe in casting out demons here. We believe that there is a spiritual uh, a kingdom of darkness that is pushing up against the kingdom of light. As my friend Rich Nation says, there's another team on the field. And so, if you feel like there's something that's been introduced into your heart, there's a demonic oppression or stronghold that you want broken off of you today, there will be an opportunity for you to receive prayer today. We believe that we've been given authority by the power of the Spirit over demonic strongholds. No matter how long that thing has been tormenting you, it's got to go today in the name of Jesus. And so the waters of healing are stirred today, and I believe the Lord wants to release freedom. And some of us, it's not demonic. It's just bad decisions. It's well-worn paths and habits that have just grown, we've grown very comfortable with. And I believe the power, the, the power of the Spirit is here to also break those things so that you might experience for a lifetime holy sexuality, chastity and singleness, faithfulness in marriage, and may the Lord by his spirit help us to walk that out let me pray Lord Jesus thank you Uh, I I thank you for your love and your grace I thank thank you for how gentle you are with us on this how much grace you've given us I also thank you for how clear and how forceful your truth is how you deal with the obvious ways we transgress as well as the gray areas father would you help us to pursue freedom and holiness at all costs is anybody in here feeling condemned and small father i pray that you would do away with that that you would convict us that you would call us higher we come against condemnation and shame and Father, even as we worship, before we even get to ministry time, we just set an atmosphere of freedom and deliverance in this place. And even as we worship, some of you might be, feel led to pray in the Spirit, to pray in tongues, and to just saturate this place with an atmosphere of freedom and deliverance. Some of you in worship, you might call out, you might cry out, somebody might manifest and need some prayer during worship, like we want to be that kind of church, free to, what, to let happen whatever God wants to happen. By any means necessary, Father, may we walk in freedom today. Come Holy Spirit, do your work. In Jesus' name we pray. Our oh, God's people say